going to get into the book of James. So grab your Bibles. We've been in this book for a little while, if you're visiting. Um, and we're learning something about the book of James. Let's kind of re- re- reiterate this this morning, that some people over the years uh, in Christian history had not liked the book of James. Matter of fact, I think we talked about a few weeks ago that Martin Luther said it was a very straw-y book and should be burned. Um, people, I think the reason they don't like it, they misunderstand it, but I think they don't like it. What they don't, what they don't like about it, what they're feeling when they read it sometimes, is they think that James is just too direct. That James, um, and I think the word they would use today is they would say this, oh, James is mean. It's a word now. Oh, you're being mean to me. Um, so... They would think James is kind of being mean. Well, they think because they think he focuses on actions, what you're doing, and so and not so much they would say on grace. Well, I couldn't disagree more with that appraisal of the book of James. Let's remember something about this book. This letter, this letter, because it's a letter written by James, the half brother of Jesus, was written by Pastor James, who was pastoring an incredibly difficult time. He was the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. It was under immense persecution. The Christians were under persecution, but Christianity was thriving. Don't ever think that we have to have rules and regulations and laws to make Christianity work. The church was thriving under persecution and pressure. And James loves the people that he's writing to, and he wants the best for them that he's writing to. And he wants the people who would read his letter in the future to live lives that were free from error and to keep them from pain now and Keep them from loss in the future when they would stand in judgment because we're we're all going to stand before the judgment seat of the Lord. So James is is direct in his writings and he deals with what he sees as a pastor. He's not some theologian in an ivory tower. He's a pastor with feet on the ground dealing with real life people and he's dealing with things he sees happening among the Christians and the churches that he's interacting with and things a lot of times that he thinks are destructive and harmful. So James, without a lot of flowery language, without a lot of excuses, may think, saying, well, let me tell you, you know, put it in nice terms. He just addresses real-life situations that Christian people face. He doesn't sugarcoat them. He doesn't sugarcoat bad behavior. Instead, he exposes it so that the people that he loves can live better lives than they're living now. And as he said back in, in uh, the verse we covered a couple weeks ago, he does it so that we can live blessed lives. He says, I want you to do this so your lives will be blessed by God. Now, that doesn't sound like a mean guy to me. That sounds like a guy with a heart of love for God and a heart of love for people. So let's keep this in mind as we read the verses that we're going to look at today, because I I think this, James may poke at some sensitive spots in our souls today as he deals with something and he wants to poke so that we will be moved in the right direction in our lives, so we can have that blessed life that God wants. Make sense? So grab your Bibles, turn to James chapter 2. And actually, I thought, I'm going to read this. I'm going to read this. I normally read this out of the New American Standard Translation. I'm going to read it out of the New Living Translation today, in case you go, oh, it sounds a little different than I'm reading if you have the same translation. Um, The reason I want to read it out of the New Living is I just think there's a little more clarity to what he's saying. So James chapter 2, the first 13 verses, so quite a long section. So let's look at that together. Verse 1, my dear brothers and sisters, how can you claim to have faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ if you favor some people over others? For example, 
Suppose someone comes into your meeting dressed in fancy clothes and expensive jewelry, and another comes in who is poor and dressed in dirty clothes. If you give special attention and a good seat to the rich person, but you say to the poor one, you can stand over there or else sit on the floor, well, doesn't this discrimination show that your judgments are guided by evil motives? Listen to me, dear brothers and sisters. Hasn't God chosen the poor of this world to be rich in faith? Aren't they the ones who inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you dishonor the poor. Isn't it the rich who oppress you and drag you into court? Aren't they the ones who slander Jesus Christ, whose noble name you bear? Yes, indeed, it is good when you obey the royal law as found in the scriptures. Love your neighbor as yourself. But if you favor some people over others, you are committing a sin. You are guilty of breaking the law. For the person who keeps all of the law except one is as guilty as the person who has broken all of the laws of God. For the same God who says you must not commit adultery also says you must not commit murder. So if you murder someone but you do not commit adultery, you have still broken the law. So whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. There will be no mercy for those who have not shown mercy to others. But if you have been merciful, God will be merciful when he judges you. We'll stop right there. Now, obviously, James, remember, Pastor James, feet on the ground, interacting with real-life Christians, is seeing something that he didn't like going on among the people in the churches that he's engaged with. They were obviously placing more value on some people than they were placing on other people um, based upon how much money they had in their pockets. And it was revealed through how they, how they dressed. So he takes a quite a long section in this letter that he writes, for us, 13 verses, to lay out for them what they were do, how, why what they were doing was wrong. In fact, in verse 9, he just bluntly says that if you show partiality like this based on somebody's um, income, you're teaching other people, some people better than others, favoring one over another, he says, quite honestly, you're just committing sin. So he says this idea, it's sin, he says this idea of favoring some people over others is a really big deal. Right? Now, let's not get too all high and mighty and look down our spiritual noses at those Christians and say, oh my goodness, I can't believe they were doing those things. Let's do what James said to do at the end of chapter 1 when he said, you know what, let's look at ourselves in the mirror of God's word and see ourselves honestly, and if there's some things we've got to adjust about ourselves, let's adjust them about ourselves. So let's just think about the illustration that James gives here to, to make his point about the distinction that goes on or the elevation of some and the devaluation of other people, even within the body of Christ. So, let's think about a rich man and a poor man coming into Portview. How do you think we would respond to the situation? That James described. What if next Sunday, some very well-dressed man shows up at Portview Church. He's driving a Ferrari. Now, who would drive a Ferrari in winter in Wisconsin? I don't know, but he's driving a Ferrari. He just looks rich. You know how you know he looks rich? Because he has a suit on, and the pinstripes meet on the shoulders. You say, what does that mean? Most of us don't wear suits anymore. But you know what it means? 
When the pinstripes meet on the shoulders, it means it's a tailor-made suit. You go to Kohl's, you buy a pinstripe suit, unless you got really lucky somehow by fluke. Uh, the pinstripes don't line up because they just cut the material. But, but a tailor-made suit, the, the stripes line up on the shoulders. So you're like, wow, that's an expensive suit. And you look at his shoes and he's wearing Allen Edmund wingtips. Now, some of us work at Allen Edmund, but few of us will spend the money to buy the shoes. And remember, you guys remember a while back we had a missionary in who had brought somebody with him. And the, and the, the, the reason that the person that came with him from the countries that, that came to our church with him is his dream of his life was to own a pair of Allen Edmund shoes. I'm like, really? He was from Africa somewhere. And they went to Allen Edmund and bought him a pair of shoes. So the guy's got this really nice suit. He's wearing Allen Edmund shoes, huge diamond rings on his hands. And he has that attitude. You know what I mean? I'm not saying bad. He just, you just know, you know that he knows he's a somebody. You know, they just kind of walk different. He walks in, goes in the cafe before church. Then some other guy pulls up in a, in a 2003 Chevy pickup and he's wearing jeans. Oh wait, that's me. Uh, the 2003. The difference is he's wearing a flannel shirt. And I've got one that my wife bought me from Kohl's. But he's got his 03 Chevy pickup and he's wearing a pair of jeans and, he, and he's, he's got a flannel shirt on and you can tell he probably just came from work because his, his clothes are dirty. Now let's be honest with ourselves. We're looking in the mirror of the Word of God honestly. Do you believe that you would treat the two men the same? Do you believe that you would give some level of respect and attention different to the man who has who has the pinstripe suit with the shoulders that the stripes that meet, then you would to the guy in the flannel shirt that's kind of dirty. You think that you would treat them with a different level of respect and attention. Well, I think life experience would tell me that generally people would treat the rich man with more honor than with the poor man. That if you're at a restaurant or you're at a store, that the rich man would probably be treated with more attention and respect than the poor man. Matter of fact, the poor man, if he's really on the lower class of the poor, based on his clothing, would be literally asked to leave the store. I had a chance to experience this a number of years ago um, when I was home from Bible college. So it's a long time ago, but it really struck me. Matter of fact, I'm going to share a couple stories today, things that really struck me when I'm young that affected me now. So I was back from Bible college, and I was doing something that required me to be wearing a suit. Now, here's the deal. I was dirt poor, and I promise you the pinstripes didn't match because I guarantee you every suit they wore, every suit I owned back then was bought from a secondhand store. It was bought from St. Vincent's or DePaul's or something. But I was dressed up in a suit, and I had to go to a certain business with my brother. My brother and I, um, so this wasn't an age thing or anything. We were 11 months apart. And we look a lot alike, at least when we were younger, we used to look alike. Now I have hair and he doesn't, doesn't, and that's great. And he's younger than me. So generally when I see it, when we're together, I always say to people, who's older? You know, and he has no hair. Um, but he was dressed in old, dirty clothing, and because he had been working on a car of his. Now the reality was, the truth was, he had way more money than me because he actually had a job. And I was, I had no money because I was going to college and made a deal. I'd only go to college and I wouldn't borrow any money. And Lord, the day the money runs out, the day I quit. And uh, went through college debt-free, um, working like a madman, but spending all my money 
um, on college. When we walked into that business, so he's dressed in old clothes, I'm dressed in, in my, my best. We walked into that business um, because he wanted to spend money. I didn't have any money. He did. And here's the reality. The people in the business would not give him the time of day. But they kept turning their attention to me and treating me very well and giving me a bunch of attention. And I'm kind of thinking it's funny because I don't, I can't afford to buy anything here. I don't have any money. And my brother, they literally would not hardly even give him any attention. And I literally had to say, he's the one who wants to do business with you, not me. We were treated differently because of their perception of how much money each of us had. And I think this is just the way it is in the world. James here says it's based on evil motives. He says evil motives drive people to show more respect to the rich than to the poor. Evil motives meaning that a person somehow hopes that they would benefit personally from the assets of the rich. And they know they can't benefit personally from the assets of the poor because the poor don't have anything. Matter of fact, the interaction with the poor might actually cost them something. So he says that we have evil motives. And here's James' point. He's saying, you know what? Maybe that's the way the world operates. That what me and my brother experienced in a store with a bunch of people who probably didn't know Jesus, that that's just the way it generally is. But James's point, as a pastor speaking to people, he's calling my dear brothers and sisters, he's saying this, but it should not be that way in the church. That's what he's trying to point out. It should not be that way in the church. So James was shocked when he saw Christians treating each other as the world treats each other. Favoritism given by some, to some people because they had more. And he's saying the real motives of that is you just want to get personal gain. Not long ago, and some of you will be familiar with this, a pastor wanted to test a new congregation that he was going to. It was a large church, 10,000 member church. And he'd been, he'd been um, elected to become the new pastor of this very large church. And he wanted to see how they would act in a situation like James is describing here. So this pastor's name is Jeremiah Stepek, dressed up as a homeless man. And we have a picture of, of Pastor Stepek here. That's Pastor Stepek dressed up like a homeless man. And he wanted to test his church. So the church, a lot of people, most people had never met him. Again, very large church, 10,000 people. And so Pastor Stepak, an article written about him, tells us that he went to church his first Sunday. That's his picture of him, his first Sunday in church. That's how he went dressed. And he wanted to, to, to figure out what did the heart of the church really prove about the church that he had just agreed to be the pastor of. So he showed up for church. It says he showed up for church early and he walked around that morning before church and only three people, he said hello to everybody, only three people said hello back to him. And he asked, dressed like that, he asked for people in that congregation at church if they, if they could give him any money to buy some food. Every single person said No. So when pastor, then dressed as a homeless man, walked into the sanctuary, he tried to go sit in the front row. You know what happened? The deacons, or the ushers rather, escorted him from the front row 
back to the back, thinking that probably God didn't really want to look at dirty people in the front row. And the pastor says that when he put him in the back row, he said hello to all the people in the back row, and they only looked at him with cold and icy stares. And so the service went on, the worship went on, and a deacon got up to the front of the church, 10,000 people. And he said, we'd like to introduce to you Pastor Jeremiah Stepek. And as the congregation clapped, it says with excitement, people were wondering why this homeless man was getting up and walking towards the front of the church. And when he got to the front of the church, he gave them the very first words of his very first sermon he ever preached in that church, and these were his first words. It says, then the king will say to those on his right, come you who are blessed of my father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or in needing clothing and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go visit you? When you did it to the least of these, you did it to me. I've got to be honest with you. What Pastor Stepek did, I've always wanted to do. I've told Suzanne for 25 years that I wanted to dress up like that and go to church someday. But I figured people would always be able to figure out it was me. You know, but this guy, if you see a picture of him without that on, you would never know it's the same guy. So he obviously went to some place and had, him all, had himself all made up. But I've always wanted to do this. Because church here, James is hitting on something that is, that is totally human, but is completely non-Christian. It's human. It's natural in the world, but it should be completely unnatural with a gathering of people who have been transformed by Jesus. Looking at some people in our world as less than should never go on. Thinking some people have less value than others do should never enter the heart of a child of God who understands that everybody has been made in the image of God. Seeing some people as more valuable or more worthy of your attention and more worthy of your time than somebody else should not happen based on things like money and race. Church, this is one of the things that Jesus himself came to change. Ultimately, friends, much of human pain and suffering is tied to this exact sin that James is dealing with here. Think of it. Wars are fought because one people group thinks they are more valuable than another people group. So in their mind, it's justifiable to drop bombs and, and, and shoot and kill and maim other people to take their land and take their possessions. Anybody watch the news this week from Syria with the little children begging, please help us, they're killing us? As they're filming, bombs are going off, kids are being dragged to makeshift hospitals, begging for help. I mean, if you could watch it and not cry, you're, you're probably not even alive. But how could that happen? Because one group in their country honestly believes they're more valuable than another group in their country. So much so that they could kill their children, drop bombs on houses. 
much of the pain and suffering this world's tied to this exact sin. Think of the illegal drug industry. It exists solely because of this. One group thinks they're more invaluable than another group. One group thinks, I can sell you something that I know will harm you and maybe kill you, but I get money out of it. It's saying, I believe I, my needs, are more important than your needs. I see you as less than me. Think of the, the, the huge movement of sex trafficking that's going on in the world. It only exists because someone can view another human being as an object of pleasure instead of a person. That's the only way it can happen. The understanding that other person is actually someone made in the image of God, that Jesus himself came to die for them, the only way somebody, that, that, that industry could exist is because one person and a group of people value themselves as greater and devalue other people and think they only exist for their pleasure. Think of the pain that we hear that students say they experience in school through bullying and cliques and closed social groups. And it's a real problem, right? But why does the problem exist? It's that one person or a group of people think they are more valuable than another group, and at that age especially, they will make sure that everybody else feels that they're less valuable. They'll, they'll, they'll make you feel less valuable. I'll never forget an experience I had in my 20s. And again, I said there's a couple of things that were very shaping in my life that taught me this lesson. And I think it's helped me to be sensitive to this in my life and it's, I think it's given me a desire to fight for the underdog, kind of a, kind of a, some driving force within me. I was living with a, with a, a guy who's my roommate and Leah's dad, wherever she is, in the nursery. We were roommates, we were living in West Bend, and, um, he needed an eye exam. And so we were living there, had nothing to do. He said, want to go with me to the eye doctor? I said, sure. So we jumped on his motorcycle together, and we drove to the eye doctor, and he got an eye exam. And while he was getting his eye exam, um, I went in with him, and in the lobby of the area was the place with all the glasses and a lady behind the counter. And I started talking to the lady behind the counter. We were about the same age. She was kind of cute. She must have thought I was kind of cute. So we started talking, and she's kind of flirting. And, and I'll say, honey, I don't think I was flirting back. Um, I'm, I'm not sure. But either way, we had this interaction. And about uh, the next day or the day after that, I had to get my wisdom teeth pulled out. And I went to the, I had to take off of work because it was a pretty big deal. Matter of fact, it was a really big deal. Five hours of oral surgery. They did, all my roots were like fish hooks. They had to drill out every canal. My, and so what the result of it was, I literally swelled up like a pumpkin. I did not think it would be possible. Matter of fact, my, my skin ripped. Because I was so swollen up and I was just, I looked hideous. I really looked bad. You might say, well, he ain't so great now. Uh, I looked, uh, it was, it was pretty bad. So as a week went by, matter of fact, I think I was off a week of work for one or two weeks. It really was a big deal. Um, a week or two later, my roommate had to go back to the eye doctor to get his glasses that we had been together with when he got his eye test. You want to go with me? He said, sure. So I jumped in the back of his motorcycle and we drove to the eye doctor. The same young lady is sitting in the, in the, in the room. Now, at this time, some of the swelling's down, but I still am looking pretty hideous. The same young lady 
but she doesn't get I'm the same guy. And I walk in and I'm just, I'm the same guy I was two weeks earlier. You know, hey, how you doing? And honestly this, she treated me like dirt. I mean, like I didn't even have a soul. She just treated me like it was just like completely like look away. And it just, it struck me. And I know I looked pretty scary, but I wasn't like I looked threatening. And that moment struck me. It was one of those life moments for me because that ex- I was the exact same person. I was the exact same person. I thought the same. I felt the same. I looked a little different, but I was the exact same person that a week earlier she was flirting with. And now she literally wouldn't even acknowledge when I'm responding, when I'm talking to her. She wouldn't even respond back to me. She treated me terribly. That's the way the world operates. But friends, what James is getting at here is it should not be that way in the church of Jesus Christ. And James wants to make this point really clear. And he wants to make sure that we can't just dismiss this as some minor thing. You say, oh, well, that's just, you know, I wasn't really doing anything wrong, you know, and not be honest with ourselves and see this is a big deal. So what he does is he puts it in context of breaking the law. Look at look at back to your Bible. Look at verses 8 through 11. This is what he's trying to do. He's trying to say this. This is a big deal. You can't dismiss it. He says, if, however, you're fulfilling the royal law according to the scripture, you sh- which is you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as a transgressor, because you're not loving your neighbor as yourself, is the point. So now he's going to go on and explain how, what, what the law really entails. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one part has become guilty of all. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not commit murder. Now if you do not commit adultery, but you do commit murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So what's he saying here? The Jewish law can be summed up. He he takes some things out of the Ten Commandments here that have been summed up by two statements. Love God and love your neighbor as yourself. The first commandments were about how you love God and the rest of the world, how you love your neighbor as yourself. So then the whole law can be summed up in these two statements, love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And he says, now if you say, I'm keeping the law toward my neighbor because I'm really doing most of the things right, but I'm just doing one small thing wrong. He says, then you're breaking the whole law. He said it would be like, gives that kind of a crazy illustration. He said, it would be like saying, I'm doing all right. I didn't commit murder. I only committed adultery. So I'm doing all right. And what he's trying to say is, well, that's, that's not all right. He's trying to get this point that there are no minor ways that you could dismiss as unimportant anything you would do that would devalue other people. He's trying to say that it's, there's never a way you can just dismiss it or work around it as unimportant, the dismissing or the devaluing, rather, of another person. And the point is this. God tells us to love our neighbors as ourselves. He calls it here the royal law. And he says that includes seeing everybody as valuable. To love our neighbors as ourselves leaves no room for valuing some people as more important 
at other people as less important. He's trying to say in the body of Christ, remember he's writing to my dear brothers and sisters, the church. In Christ we are one. In Christ everyone has eternal value. Friends, the church is supposed to be a shining example of what can be. We can be different than the world where some people are important and valuable and a whole lot of people just aren't. This covers ideas of of racial divides and political differences and and economic divisions. So that shouldn't exist in the church world. We are all important. There are no little people in the church. Everyone matters. Everyone matters in the kingdom of God. So James is asking, is this true about us? Is it true about our church? How would we treat a homeless man who walked into our doors next Sunday? And he said, can you give me some money for some food? Would you give money or at least bring him over and give him some food and a cup of coffee? What would we do? Or maybe, maybe a different way to think about it, because we live in a, our church is out in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of a cornfield. Not too many homeless people walking around. How do you treat the homeless man or the homeless woman that you pass by on the street when you're downtown Milwaukee or downtown Chicago? Do you treat them with the same dignity as you would treat a rich neighbor that you know? That's an important word. The same dignity. Understanding that they are people created in the image of God. James says to value them differently. This is James' words. That's why some people don't like getting poked by James. He didn't go, oh, that's just really, that's really just bad, Mark. He goes, no, it's sin. That's how he calls it. I want to end today by reading a parable that Jesus taught that I think really ties in here. Turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke, the 14th chapter. And I really believe that this is what the Lord is trying to say to us. First of all, I don't think God is saying, hey, you guys do this poorly. But I think what he's going to say here is what he's trying to communicate to our church for who he wants us to be. Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 16. But he said to him, a man was giving a a big dinner And he invited many. And at the dinner hour, he sent his slave to say to those who had been invited, Come, for everything is ready now. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first one said to him, I have brought a piece of land and I need to go out and look at it. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have bought five oxen, five yoke of oxen, and I am going to try them out. Please consider me excused. Another one said, I have married a wife, and for that reason I cannot come. And the slave came back and reported this to his master. Then the head of the household became angry and said to his slave, Go out at once into the streets and the lanes of the city and to bring them in here, the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the slave said, Master, what you commanded has been done, and there's still room. And the master said to the slave, Go out into the highways and along the hedges and compel them to come in so that my house may be fulfilled. For I tell you, none of those men who are invited shall taste of my dinner. 
Now let's put this parable in, a context, in context. Jesus taught this parable at a meal, it says. The people were coming in to this large gathering and were picking out places of honor to sit at. In other words, they were seeing themselves as more valuable than others. He says that's the context of what he's teaching this, this story in. So he tells a parable in order to get them to understand they think that they're more important. They think that they deserve to sit at the place of honor. They think that I'm more important than you, so I should sit in this good place and you should sit down there. What they're really saying is I have this same attitude that James is dealing with. So he tells a parable about a big dinner. In his parable, all the important and the noble and the valuable people are invited. The landowners and the businessmen and the well thought of in the community. But they're all too occupied, preoccupied to come. So the master sends his servant to go to get the poor. It says the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. He says go to the highways and the hedges and compel them to come in. Bring them with you. And they do. But there's two things that I think we need to learn from this parable as applied to what we're talking about with James. The first one is this. The master, who is Jesus, welcomes everyone to his table. He welcomes everyone in the kingdom. He does not see rich and poor. He does not see you know, old and young. He sees people with the stamp of God on them, the image of God that need to be redeemed. He welcomes everyone to his table, rich and poor, broken and whole, and friends, so, so, so should we welcome them all. The second thing is this. Often those with less are more willing to respond to the Lord's invitation. Now, he's not trying to say in this thing that, uh, that, that because you're poor, you're uh, godly, and because you're rich, you're ungodly. He's just trying to make some generalizations. He goes, hey, isn't it generally the, the poor person who can be rich towards God? Um, and isn't it, sometimes the rich guys are the ones who will tend to drag you into court. But you're still drawn to the rich guys, the point he's trying to make. And so we need to understand is, often those with less are more willing to respond to the Lord's invitation. Why? Because often they're less distracted because they don't have land to go to. They don't have or all the things. I bought land or, you know, it's business opportunities and all the different things. I don't have those in my life. They're more willing to respond because they have less distractions. And oftentimes, ones with less are more aware of their need. Because one of the things that, that Scripture points out often about having resources is that it, it acts like a, like a false god and that it gives you false security and you really don't know your needs because you don't necessarily, they can be masked by purchasing and doing. Portview, here's what I believe God is saying to us about this. I believe he's calling us to go to the highways and the hedges and invite the poor and the crippled, the down and the outcast to Portview, to bring them in, to compel them to come in. Why? So that they can experience what they don't experience in the world. We can show them that there is something different. That the image of the church, the ideal of the church, in, even, though we're all, even though we're all limited and we all don't measure up, but we're trying, 
that the ideal that Jesus paints for this church is that we're a place where everybody matters, that they can experience that to some degree in this church, like they'll never experience it in the world. That we can show that there's something different, that we can love them and we can lead them to Jesus. That says something about us. It says that, number one, we have to go because we have to actually believe they're valuable. Number two, when we're here, we have to look and see who's among us. We have to take time to look and see who's among us and do our best to not say, well, I'm attracted to that person because maybe motives could be impure. Well, I could get something from them or they just like what I like. And you see somebody else who's different and you literally avoid them. We don't want to be that. We don't want to be that church. And I don't think we are. We can always get better. Remember James is saying, look in the mirror of the word. And remember what he said from a couple weeks ago. He said the dumbest, he says, the dumbest thing you can do, you're deceiving yourself. If you look in the mirror, you go, hey, Mark, your hair's a mess and, you're, and you got drooled on your cheek and, you know, you need to brush your teeth. And you just walk away and you don't do any of it. He said, what's the point of looking in the mirror in the first place? What's the point of looking in the mirror unless we say, God, now make us better? God love through us. And this is my concluding question to us today. Who is it that the Holy Spirit has reminded you about as I've been talking? I believe he has been. What relative? What friend? What enemy? What co-worker? I believe God has brought them to your mind so you will go to them and bring them with you. Do your best to bring them with you into the kingdom, to the table of Jesus. And that could start by bringing them to Portview. This means we better be different than the world towards those we bring in because you don't know next week the person I invite might show up and I sure hope you treat them the way, the way James says we ought to treat them. Next week, it may be your brother or your sister, your mom or your dad, your aunt or your uncle that you bring in. And I better treat them with dignity and grace and love the same way I would anybody else who comes in with a with million dollars of jewelry and the Ferrari and the perfectly lined stripes on his suit coat. Right? Let's love what Jesus is love. Let's value people the way Jesus does. There's no small and unimportant people in the kingdom of God. So we go to the highways and the hedges and we compel them to come in. Stand with me this morning. Lord, on behalf of our church family, I welcome, I welcome you to impress on our hearts and our minds people that we know. Our family and our friends, our co-workers, our neighbors, those who we really love and those we might not really enjoy so much. And Lord, I have to believe this. There are those in our circles of influence who are feeling like they're unimportant. And Lord, I would pray you would use this church family 
to prove to them how very valuable they are. That you would prove to them by the actions of our church family that would actually go to compel them to come in. And then you would prove to them through the loving grace and hospitality of this church family how valuable they are in your eyes. And Lord, I would ask that this very day you'd impress a person upon our heart. Lord, I believe I know the person you've impressed on my heart. And I want to take the next step and try to compel that journey to come in. Build the relationship. And compel him to come in. Lord, help us not look down our noses thinking that somehow as Christians we have something figured out we're better than we're not. Just save
something bold just between you and me and God because no one else is looking around. I'm not going to embarrass you in any way. I just want to see you to pray with. You say, I want to give my life to Jesus. I want you to raise up your hand. When I see it, I'm going to ask you to put it down. So I'm just going to, when I see your hand, I'm just going to say, okay. God, we would leave with a sense of mission today. We would have incredible opportunities. 